Welcome to Masters of Business, a show that gives you real-world techniques, cutting-edge strategies, and extraordinary insights for managers and leaders who want to develop the business acumen needed to go faster and farther in their business careers. Now, here's the master himself, Stephen Haynes. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Stephen Haynes for Masters of Business. Um, as I mentioned at the start of each show, there is a business acumen canvas that, uh, that portrays this multidimensional um, um, stuff, if you will, um, that makes up this area called business acumen. But there's one piece of that puzzle that focuses on things like people and teams and leadership and things like that. And and as I as I've been thinking through this area of people and teams and and the terms like leadership and communication and collaboration they they become they come sometimes a little sometimes a little bit blurry and there are some areas i think are important to think about and um, i've had a couple of shows where i'm talking to people about areas like diversity and inclusion because that's one important dimension of the people world, if you will. So with this context and this in mind, um, I am so incredibly honored and grateful to speak with Rasha Hassanin today. She is the executive director of the Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces at Train Technologies, which is a spinoff from Ingersoll Rand. Um, but of greater importance, Rasha is focusing on the intersection between diversity and innovation. So that's the hook for today's show. So Rasha, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Stephen. And it is an honor and a pleasure to be here with you as well. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with you today. Me too, me too. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Anyway, so as we start, um, and as I start all of these shows, tell us a little bit about your career story. Sure, happy to. Uh, I'm not sure kind of where you want me to start, but how about I just, I start at the beginning. So um, I think I, you know, I will, I always tell people, I, I, I think I, I knew I wanted to be an engineer when I was about eight. Um, and uh, I, I kind of, I, I spent time in the U.S. very early in my childhood and then went to a girl's school in Saudi Arabia where um, not a lot of teachers were telling you, you could, you could be a female engineer, but I kind of knew I wanted to be an engineer. So um, I went to college um, expecting that that was exactly what I was going to be. I was going to, you know, design airplanes and then maybe rocket ships. I was going to be an engineer. Um, and then I graduated um, with, with honors from, from engineering um, and became an engineer. Yay, dream. Uh, for about three years, became a professional engineer, yay dream, and then realized I didn't actually love the work <laughs> of being an engineer as much as I liked the idea of being an engineer, but there were things that I loved about it. The first was um, was technology. I, I love technology. I love problem solving. I love all of those core elements of engineering that I continue to use every every day. Um, but, you know, I, I also realized that I love spending time with customers and understanding business context. And um, I was fortunate enough to have a father who uh, was a finance guy and, and who convinced me to do a minor in business during uh, during college and said, hey, I kind of really like the intersection of those things together. And so let me go learn more about that. And so I went out to Silicon Valley and, and got my master's. Again, in engineering, but in in um, in engineering and, and management again, 
And um, I was probably one of the very few programs at the time that actually trained people how to be product managers. And um, I remember in our seminar class at, at school, one of our professors saying, this is, you know, you can graduate from here and actually become this job called a product manager um, or a product marketing manager. Um, and that's what brings, you know, these things together. And eventually you can kind of lead um, big organizations that, that continue to lead uh, to, to focus on technology. Um, and, and in fact, you know, a lot of my classes were well, marketing for technology companies or strategy for technology, com- which, which is fantastic because it has those things in it and, and proceeded to get my first job um, as a product manager. And, um, and I, I would say my, since then, my career um, has been largely product management, what I call with bouts of strategy. So I've done, you know, large sort of long spouts as product manager or product marketing manager um, in different companies in Silicon Valley. And then I would do small uh, chunks of sort of strategy and strategy management um, for those, a lot of those same companies. Um, And right around, um, right as I first kind of became vice president um, in the Valley, I realized something that was really kind of important to me. Um, I had had some some medical issues and 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 decided that I really was wanted to focus on a purpose as it related to my career. But before that, my purpose was getting promoted. So that was like we when we're young, right? We're invincible, and we just want to um, get promoted. Um, and frankly, as um as um as a as an African American woman, um, obviously it was hard, right? Getting getting promoted um, at a regular cadence at the level, at the sort of the rate that you wanted to is not easy. So it consumes a lot of your time. Uh, but it became clear that I, that I really needed more. And so I, I started learning a lot about uh, sustainability. And it, what became really clear to me was that I was in the digital world. I came from the industrial world and I, it became clear that really bringing digital to industrial processes was really what was going to drive this sort of sustainability um, engine. And at the time, no one was talking about sustainability. Now everyone's talking about sustainability and climate change. At the time, there were only a few companies in California and the Valley that were really focused on that. Um, And I'm not going to tell you when the time was, because that would be dating myself. (laughs) But um, but I, I didn't know enough about it. I realized I didn't know enough about it. And um, I wanted to learn more. And just like every sort of achiever in the world, I didn't want to learn without anything to show for it. And so I decided to do a, a PhD in focusing on sustainability. But again, I, I understood that it wasn't a tech, technology only piece. So again, I, I, I kind of went back on, on my old um, trusted ally, um, included a business um, major, but then felt like I wanted more to understand more about the business environment. So added a third discipline around public policy. And so um, they didn't know how to graduate me at the end of the doctorate, but I did a degree in in engineering, business and public policy. Um, And it was probably the most rewarding experience I've had because one, it was on my own terms. I was still working at the time. Um, But at the same time, I really got to focus on this really interesting intersection um, and that was when I came back to the industrial world, um, also in a, in a product management function, 
um, and then eventually took this fantastic role with uh, with Train. I led product management for for the function for a few years. Was responsible for product management excellence, as you know, um, as well as innovation. Um, and that was where I feel like a lot of my training came together. Um, and this sort of concept around um, product teams and management teams really understanding the impact of their businesses and products on climate and how to really deliver both financial and sustainability outcomes simultaneously um, was really kind of the sweet spot for me. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, um, it was a wake up call because um, although we had as, as a company done a lot as it related to indoor environmental quality at Train, um, we not the market wasn't super focused on it. The market had evolved and was really focused on energy efficiency, energy intensity and sustainability, but hadn't looked at optimizing sustainability with indoor and air quality, indoor environmental quality for a long time. And that kind of turbocharged this. So, so the company asked me to, to take on um, the leadership of the Center for Healthy and Efficient Spaces that's really looking at that intersection of human health and planetary health in a really kind of interesting way. And so kind of that's how I landed here. But hopefully this, uh, this gives you a sense of, 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 um, of my history and, and my journey. This sends shivers up my spine, and and I know we share a few common things in terms of even working in the Silicon Valley. But as I as I think thematically about you know who's out in our audience and who's listening to this, right? And I talk about the whole business acumen piece, and you mentioned a couple of things: problem solving, working with customers. Um, by your comments, you are a strategic and systemic thinker. Mm -hmm. And you are looking at all of these things that are in play at various points in time, ebbing and flowing. The processing of this is, I think, what's critical to any emerging leader. Mm -hmm. And when you overlay that with what you said about sort of coming up with these innovative thoughts, like you would never have put your job right now on your career radar screen ever. Would not, I absolutely would not have. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and, and I was especially taken by your epiphany, you know, that you realized where you were. And again, we, we in, in business and leadership and management, regardless of where we are on our sort of career development spectrum, have to recognize and allow for our journey to inform us of what's mm -hmm. possible, that we have to keep our radar screens up, okay? And, you know, we, we've talked in the, you know, previously about this role of innovation, um, but um, the intersection of diversity and innovation, I think, has merit and requires um, some careful discussion. And I want people to really listen to what you have to say about this. So please share. Absolutely. So um, the, the most important thing about sort of true innovation is, um, is really getting diversity of thought um, on a particular problem that matters to customers and the market. Because that's the only way you're really going to develop differentiated solutions. I mean, you can go solve a problem the traditional way and develop solutions and have a perfectly good solution. They just won't be differentiated. And the goal of every product team 
Um, the goal of, I think, every product manager in the world is to, is to really manage a, a portfolio of differentiated products. How do we get that differentiation? Well, we look at differentiation in a lot of ways, but the most important way is to really understand your customer better than anybody else, segment the market in a way that's unique, that allows you to see these groups of customers and market opportunities, understand those unmet needs in those underserved segments, and then come up, come up with solutions that will solve those problems in a differentiated way. When you start to think about how do I do that, diversity and a diversity of thought becomes really important. And so there's a lot of ways to get diversity of thought, but we know that, that Stephen, you and I can go through the, the exact same experience and by virtue of our different backgrounds, we're gonna have differences in how we experience that event, right? You and I can go through a set of events. We're gonna, because, of our, because our backgrounds are so different, we're gonna experience those events differently. And if you and I can have a conversation about those events, I'm going to learn from you and you're going to learn from me. So adding diversity to a team is the shortcut button for getting diversity of thought. Otherwise, you've got to dig through sort of a sea of sameness, what appears to be sameness, to really start to understand um, whether or not you're really getting diversity of thought. So, so absolutely having diversity in these teams is really important. But what's also important, and that's what's, in, what's important about having diverse leaders, is that when you are diverse, typically you've experienced being excluded for even the, you know, for probably the majority of your life, if not at least the majority of your career, um, just because of where diversity, equity, inclusion has originated from and where it's come so far. Most of us as leaders now, if you're a diverse leader, you've experienced what that feels like. And so you end up being much more deliberate about including others. So you develop these skills, these inclusionary skills around listening, around um, being open to ideas, around being comfortable with ideas that are not similar to yours, mucking around in ambiguity. Um, and you also develop those skills when listening to customers. Because the biggest thing, the biggest mistake you can make as an innovation leader is to go in speaking with customers or analyzing markets with your own confirmation bias. And when you're diverse, you're so used to listening to others to allow your, yourself to fit in, you start to develop that skill kind of naturally. But those skills are all critical for any innovation leader, whether, whether you're diverse or not. You have to be able to listen to customers without confirmation bias. You have to be able to listen to your teams around you, to your sales teams, to, to the market, to begin to understand what the real needs are and whether or not you're able to develop solutions there. And so for me, it's a natural sort of, it's a natural extension of building a team that's focused on innovation to include a a lot of diversity, and then to generate a team culture that allows for inclusivity to get the best ideas to the top. Because again, without that, you're, you're going to come to a solution, but it may not be the best solution, and it may not be differentiated enough for you to succeed in the market.
And I think also some people hunt for, you know, we're, we're, we're hunting for a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes the problem presents us it presents itself to us from a situation that's encountered by groups of customers. Um, but it's the it's the the stuff that they don't even know. I think that exactly. we, we in product always talk about they didn't know what they didn't know or they don't know what they don't know. Right. And there's sort of you know even as I evolved in in business and in product and in other other functions. I always thought that I only had my point of view, which is right. saying what you what you were saying, and um, like I'm a I'm a process automation person. Like mm-hmm. to me, the logic of linear of 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 linearity and swim lanes and handoffs and timing just sits so naturally in my head, right? But I, I, I say this to people all the time. I have refrigerator blindness, right? You know, it's the open the refrigerator; you don't see things. Mm-hmm. And the idea of bringing diversity to a team um, is so incredibly vital because of the perspectives that you don't even know they have. And as you learn with your team, you know, I was thinking about like, I was watching Star Trek the other day. I'm a Star Trek fan too. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, when you, when they beam down to a planet, they have an away team, right? Right. The away team is always diverse. Right. Correct. And yep. the problem, the problems they encounter, which they barely they think they know they're going after something, but something always unexpected happens, is yep. a metaphor for everything that happens in business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, sorry to ramble on this, but the companies that master this will have greater control over their future. And that's something I think even shareholders see. Absolutely. What do you think about that? Um, a- absolutely. And I and I and it's the reason why we're seeing so much focus on diverse boards, on diverse, you know, C-suites, on a diverse executive teams, why DEI, I believe why DEI is becoming such a critical part of ESG reporting. And we're hearing about more rigor around uh, around that as it as it relates to um, rigor in the ESG reporting world. Um, but but I absolutely believe it because ultimately, um, as a company, you can make money in a lot of ways. But to really have sustained performance at the levels that the market demands, any public company kind of has this, um, it, it requires sustained innovation, not sustaining, but sustained innovation. And for you to start to really uncover what where there are different groups of people that maybe you didn't even know. It's one thing to know your current customer set and have somebody come in with a different point of view and uncover a need, but there are whole customer sets out there that we could be we could be um, we we could be ignoring because we don't have representation of those customer sets on our teams. Um, and so it's a, it's just a very, it's, you know, it's a natural thing when you say, oh, I'm going to expand into a new country. I need to understand, even though, even though a lot of companies have even made mistakes in those cases, but in, in an, in a, in a country like the United States, for example, where you have these, you know, these large purchasing groups that are very diverse in nature, if, if you miss, then you miss, right? You miss huge opportunities. And the, and, and so your shareholders, that's what matters to them, sure. right? That's that's what they're looking for. And a lot, there's so many shareholders, 
so many investors now that are are looking at both sustainability and diversity. And as part of that diversity and inclusion as key metrics and where they put their money, that it's because they see this kind of as a leading indicator of long-term success. I think there are some other dimensions as you were talking, I was thinking about, I, I, I worked um, for a number of years in, in the AT&T Bell Laboratories organization, the, mm-hmm. the R&D people who I, I literally worshiped, I could not believe how blessed I was for working in that environment. Um, and I, I'm thinking about what things that you're talking about. Number one is sort of this, you, you mentioned the technology angle. Mm-hmm. Technology also is not just about what's existing, but the R&D, the R side of Mm R&D. And I I was thinking also, as you were speaking about this Venn diagram visual in my head of R&D and technology and business and innovation and all of these different moving parts Mm -hmm. that will contribute to a company's um, propensity to be more successful Mm -hmm. if it does include other points of view. And I remember at t was extremely focused on that. I think mm-hmm. slightly ahead of the, its time even um, in terms of diversity and inclusion. Um, and we we were it was drilled into us. So, I mean, any thoughts on that, even in terms of what's going on at TRAIN in the R part of R&D and tech and innovation? In, in ter- I'm sorry, in terms in, in of- the research part of R&D. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so TRAIN does, so TRAIN, the way we look at advanced technologies or R&D is actually um, is actually a little bit different. Number one, um, we have our advanced technologies team that are focused on key, um, key technologies um, that are out there. It is networked. So they're networks of excellence um, that some sit in the businesses closer to customers, some sit at the corporate center. Um, but our the way we kind of think about this is, we only know so much. And if you look at, frankly, at corporate R&D spend versus sort of investment in R&D organizations and startups, it's dwarfed, right? Corporate R&D spend is dwarfed by a lot of external investment. So whether it's it's the innovation team or whether it's the advanced technologies team, we we are highly networked externally. And we network, our network, our external networks are very diverse. They're global and they're universities and they're NGOs and they're startup accelerators and they're venture capital firms and they're direct to to, uh, startups, right? So we'll look at papers and we'll look at patents and we'll go directly to startups. And we manage an incredibly extensive network, hundreds of nodes on this network on specific areas of research because we know we can't do it alone. And this concept of collaborating, sort of collaborating externally, being humble enough as a leader to understand that you don't have all the answers, that somebody out there might be right now inventing the next big thing. How do you partner with them? How do you uncover that? So we have a scanning and screening process you know, we prioritize um, around key sustainability pathways, um, but we we manage an extensive um, network that is where we draw on that diversity, and it's global. It's in every almost every country in the world, um, and we partner with these organizations in a way that's 
that's really collaborative because what we can bring is scale, then we can bring domain. A lot of times these organizations have very deep expertise in an area that we frankly, you know, that area may be 10% of it applies to our, our market and the rest applies to other markets. But by partnering with them, we're able to really get the best of both worlds. And so it's it's kind of those are the elements that if, in our sort of process that I feel differentiate us, right? Because we we don't have this massive R and D organization that that wants to go out and and own kind of everything. It's more around what is the right partnership model? How do we manage this? really broad ecosystem. How are we the best partner we can be to these other innovative organizations? Um, and then how do we how do we help them? And then when there is an opportunity, how do we then bring that into the fold and scale it and offer it to our customers? Um, but that's really the, I mean, I, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but that's oh kind God. of the, how we First think all, through it. I get, I'm telling you, I get the shivers from this stuff because I think it is so incredibly powerful and really serves as an example. And I really, I'm hoping people who are listening to this um, are, are really considering the fact that you can't invent everything yourself. Everything yourself. Talk about, right. You know, there are all these arguments about in innovation and creativity as if we, you know, I used to say to my staff, I don't have a monopoly on creativity. I just don't. Right. I, right. I can't find other resources and have the curiosity to do that, right. this is, I think this is an important leadership lesson as well. And that is we, we can put ourselves down into and look down into the silos, if you will, of where we work and the agendas of the functions from which we come, or we can lift our heads and think of things more holistically. And I think right. that, is a, that's, that is an incredibly important subtext of everything that you've been talking about with us today. Absolutely. Do you agree? Anyway, um, there's one more topic. You were talking about something when we spoke last about Operation Possible at Train. Yeah. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's one of my, actually one of my favorite subjects to talk about. So you talked about briefly about sort of getting all of this creativity going. And so while we do have an innovation and um, an advanced technology team, what we've tried to do with Operation Possible is to really engage every employee in the company on topics that are um, that are really important to us from a sustainability perspective. And those topics are typically what we call bottom of the pyramid topics that are endemic um, issues that really are global and are not being worked on, but they're actually pretty absurd. Um, and so we uh, we run every year. We run um, a, a crowdsource sort of ideation um, innovation process with every single employee in the company. The first year we did this, we asked our employees to tell us what problems they actually wanted to solve. Mm -hmm. And we had an overwhelming response. We selected down to five key sort of world issues that we felt we could, we could contribute to. And then we proceeded to run the same process for each of the of the key of the key topics. And the first one was this juxtaposition of food waste and hunger. So a big issue. So when you say, hey, are we going to cure world hunger? We weren't, we're not going to cure it, but we we believe we have a role to play. And we believe that, you know, if you look at how much food um, is lost or wasted, 
um, in the food value network. And what that means in terms of sustainability, greenhouse gas emissions, it's huge. And then you look at how many people actually are don't don't have sustenance are hungry or are food insecure it's also huge and so you have these two ends of a spectrum and and it's a connect it ends up being sort of a connectivity issue and so we took it on ourselves to come up with really great ideas on how to help solve that problem um, that is outside of the realm of our our current sort of um uh businesses and the idea was we believe that if you could come up with an innovative way to do it, you it would also be a business solution. It wasn't that wasn't the primary objective, but when we started to down select ideas, if you engage all 35,000 people, you're you're likely to get some things that are gonna that are gonna um, have business implications. But we engaged the entire organization, our small group of people, we had business champions in every business. That was sort of that were that were working this. We had a crowd solving process. We ran jam sessions, and we eventually got it down to four ideas, of which two were initially were selected first that we're working through that are really really cool actually. Um, and we've got some real some real interest from NGOs from from global organizations on the topic. But I think the most important thing was to really one allow people to opt in. On, on how much I wanted to, 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 um, to engage, but also to really leverage the whole diversity of the organization. Um, and, and from that, it's sort of, whether it's um, actual physical diversity or diversity of thought, or, hey, I'm in a different country and I see this thing that maybe people in this country don't see, but it, it, it has just been a really kind of rewarding experience and, and has really engaged our employees in a very different way. It's powerful powerful example of diversity at work and of, of really pulling, you know, the, the idea of inclusion, mm-hmm. that's inclusion personified. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I am, um, I'm blown away. I mean, listen, we, we talked before um, these chats, but I never know what's going to come out during the chat sometimes. <laughs> you know, I was reminded of some course I took back in graduate school called something about the social cost of private enterprise or something. And it was mm-hmm. about about corporate social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Now that topic has emerged. Um, I don't know that we talk enough about it. Mm-hmm. I think in corporate world and in corporate earnings, even when we, when I, you know, if you watch like CNBC or any of the business channels, I don't think they talk about it enough. And mm-hmm. I hope that people get a chance to really listen to what we've spoken about today and what you have shared because. Yeah everything regarding diversity, including innovation, creativity, where do the ideas come from, how we process those, how we select those. The fact that in, that you're including others, whether it's crowdsourced ideas, serves to engage people. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Them, right? Absolutely. And, and it, allows, it allows them to even build cross- sort of organizational cognizance that builds upon itself. Absolutely. And the momentum that's obtained through that can only benefit any company. It can benefit employees. Like I'd want to work in your company. I hope that people want to work train, you know? Well, that's that's part of it. Our first, I mean, our first couple of years, we're not going to have, we went into this knowing we're not, this is like this is an 
this is how we engage our employees. And then hopefully we come out with some really great ideas we can commercialize. But we knew this was an investment for at least a few years before we would see commercial success here. Um, but in a world where, you, where companies are really struggling to retain employees, um, where people are, you know, there's, there's a war on talent, right? Post-pandemic, you hear about the great resignation. Um, but this is something we started during COVID. This was before, um, before everyone was starting to resign. But, but it's, and it, the idea is, and part of the design of the program is we engage employees at every step. So you come up with the ideas, then everyone votes, then ideas get selected, then, every, then, then we form these massive sort of, I, we had one jam session last year that was 200 people, right? Now you would wonder like, how do you distill these ideas? And will we, you know, we came up with some really great digital tools, et cetera. And then, but we, we also have people who, are trained um, in, in our innovation kind of standard work that can help get these down to things that are workable and, and into sort of concepts that we then can, um, can, can take through the commercialization process. But, um, but it, it's, it's, it's truly part of our employer value proposition is to really think about how to engage employees, not just engage them in the culture, but also to engage them in how we do some things different for the world. Well, I want to be cognizant of our time. I yes. am um, enlightened. I am further educated. I hope that other people are in terms of everything that you shared today. I I can't even, this so far went beyond any things that I was expecting to learn because I, <laughs> I thought I knew a bunch of stuff, but I realized every time I, what I think, when I think I know something, then I realize how much I don't know and how much um, many of these conversations that I have with esteemed people like yourself working in companies that blow me away. And uh, I, I just, um, I, don't know, I don't even know what to say other than um, thank you for being here. Do you, do you want people to get in touch with you in any way? Um, I'm, look, absolutely. They can reach out. I mean, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm usually pretty responsive unless they're trying to sell, sell me something. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, no, happy to connect with people. Um, uh, can they can connect with me on LinkedIn, and I'll obviously um, I'll obviously respond. But yeah, look, anything I can do to help people on their own journey, I I'm I'm happy to. And and Stephen, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure for me as well. I also learn something every time every time we connect. So I appreciate you having me on the show. I know we've had uh, we've had um, a, a relationship here. Um, that that um, that that we've enjoyed and and thank you for for ab absolutely thank you for giving voice to um, to some of these issues which I think are critically important for businesses without a doubt. Without a doubt. Anyway, so um, thank you again and thank you everybody else for listening to Masters of Business and uh, we will see you on our next show. I'm Stephen Haynes. Bye bye. You've been listening to Masters of Business with Stephen Haynes, a podcast that captures the ideas and lessons learned from thinkers and leaders in business. If you'd like to take your company to the next level, consider the courses and books from the Business Acumen Institute. To learn more, go to business-acumen.com.